Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, starring Patrick Wilson, Vera Farmiga, Ruia O'Connor, and Sarah Catherine Hook. Story by James Wan and David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. Screenplay by David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick and directed by Michael Chavez. Welcome back to Rye Smile Film. It's time to put the capper on this film review cask, this one tied all around The Conjuring Universe. And today we're wrapping it up with The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. This came out on Friday, both on HBO Max and in the theaters. So hopefully you got to see it in the theaters, but I know we're going to have a lot to talk about, both in the true story and then just what this story in this movie is. So I'm really looking forward to this. Wait, what the hell? Hang on, guys. We're getting some weird feedback coming in through the microphones here. Hang on a second. Holy shit. Guys, seriously, I don't know where this is coming from. Okay, this is seriously creepy. Like, I I really do not know where this is coming from. it hello can you hear me are we you there you loud and clear <laughs> you're not here this is, this is the strangest thing you were here one minute and now you you've disappeared i have no idea where you're at i don't know where you've gone to but hopefully you're okay i'm on the other side of the united states <laughs> not poltergeist to the other stuff the other side <laughs> Uh, I come in really good on Channel 4 or in the state of Florida. Either one of those will work really well this week. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, it's good to hear from you. Uh, we're doing things, uh, recording from a distance for the first time in our history. But uh, yeah. we'll we'll see how this goes. I know we're, we're probably both looking forward to, to talking about uh, this movie. I don't know about you, Matt. I got a lot to say. I'm sure you do as well. Oh, here we go. So, um as we were watching this film, I couldn't help but recall the conversations that you and I have had for the last three weeks and some of the dying, haha, get that dying wishes that we wanted to be quelled by the conjuring storm. And they were addressed, but I don't know if they've been quelled. This is going to be a really interesting chat tonight. Well, cheers to you first and foremost, uh, distance cheers. Uh, I'm having some more of the old elk uh, sour mash. What do you got go over there? Well, uh, we just kind of finished up a day and we were at the pool for a while after we finished up one of the parks. So I believe what I'm drinking is called a bourbon breeze. Um, this is one of those seaside pool drinks. I believe it's some bourbon with some pomegranate some ginger beer and uh, God only knows what the hell else is in here. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's okay. The old elk's better. Excellent. We like it kind of neat. This is anything but neat. But it's one of those, you know, poolside fruity oh, drinks. Yeah, so there yeah. you go. Vacation drinks. Excellent. Excellent. There you well, go. Well, cheers, yep. cheers to you. Uh, let's go ahead and get this party. Yeah. And let's get this party started with our flight question. Ah. 
righty, all righty. Uh, Matt, you you got the flight question for us this week, so why don't you go ahead and hit us with that? Yeah, I'm not sure what number in the franchise this is now. Seven, is that right? Is the seven Conjuring proper? Let me see if I could do it in or my head improper. real quick. Three Conjuring films, three Annabelle films, a La Llorona, and The Nun. So this that's is eight. that's eight. Yep. So eight films into the Conjuring world or franchise, I have a two pronged attack here for you, Jesse. Okay. First thing I want you to do is tell me what you think the greatest success of this film universe has been thus far. And then the flip side of that is what is its biggest failure through eight films. Excellent. Do you want to, do you want to do successes first? I do. All righty. Let's, let's do it. I'll go first. Uh, We we talked about this last week with uh, conjuring two, and I think probably the greatest unforeseen success, uh, maybe not necessarily, what I think you're going to talk about, but is this franchise's ability to actually create some pretty interesting and formidable antagonists, whether it's Bathsheba or Valak, the Crooked Man, and Annabelle itself. Now in the execution department is another question, but I think they've created some really striking, really interesting to look at villains that are probably honestly more memorable after the film ends than maybe the films themselves. So to the screenwriters, the James Wan and, you know, everyone in tow, they've done a good job in the villain department with, with this franchise. That's a really good answer. That's mm-hmm. terrific. I kicked the tires on something similar to that, but that's actually not the route that I was going to go with okay. as much as I was hard on Patrick Wilson and his Elvis impersonation last week. I think the greatest success for me has to do with our two main players, the Warrens. Um, with a little bit of research that I've done on them in real life, I kind of find Ed to be a bit off putting, uh, you know, I've mm-hmm. thrown around snake oil salesman and that's mostly tongue in cheek. I don't really have any proof on that other than, you know, any sort of paranormal investigation might lend itself to but where I think Ed and Lorraine really do work is on the screen. Mm-hmm. Always been a huge fan of Vera Farmiga. And I think Patrick Wilson is a really good opposite. Mm-hmm. They play well off each other. They have really good chemistry. I think that's a space that you and I both kind of respect, which is the family dynamic. And so far as that relationship, as long as it's not too forced. And so what I would say is for me, the greatest success for the conjuring, although the antagonists are terrific and maybe lacking a bit in the execution. I agree 100 there. Mm-hmm. I think it's making me believe that they're a couple. They look like a couple on screen and they haven't all three of those films. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to go with. And I tried to think back too. I mean, they do show up again in the third Annabelle, Annabelle comes home film. They're, um, you know, not the main characters in that one, but yeah. even their willingness to come back for this uh, cinematic universe to make an appearance in, in that one, I think, you know, speaks to, I think they really like being in these movies to come back for a third entry is that's not saying it lightly for, for actors and actresses. It really isn't, especially when you do horror, like you might get Jamie Lee Curtis early on to do one or two, mm-hmm. but at that point in her career, I think B list might be <laughs> um, a bit, further than I'm comfortable really giving her credit for. Mm -hmm. But Vera Farmiga has a production career, has been in tons of movies, Mm -hmm. uh, several television shows. And Patrick Wilson is 
that same kind of thing from Fargo to, I mean, last time I saw him might've been Aquaman, but he is not an unknown presence. And for them oh, to yeah. come back for the third film and it not be directed by James Warren, because a lot of times these actors and actresses will hitch their wagon to a particular director yeah, that they like. Stay loyal to the filmmaker. Yep. Yeah. There's something going on there to where they keep wanting to come back and the franchise does not suffer because of it. So there you go. There's our successes. Excellent. Well, let's talk about some. Of, let's talk about some of those failures, maybe some of those um, right. missteps with this particular franchise. Uh, Matt, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, this rewatch has really made me take into consideration. Oh boy, we're gonna. I, I won't go into too much detail with this film. We're gonna talk about it again today. The stretching of the based on a true story moniker with this particular intellectual property, which is Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, Matt, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief uh, for a lot of films, but I don't know what it is in this particular viewing where I'm like, okay, they're really trying, you're selling it to me as based on a true story, but the things you're doing in here are so fantastical to the point mm-hmm. of preposterous and ridiculous uh, yep. that uh, it's been a real sticking point for me. And I don't want to say it stopped me from enjoying some of the moments. I there's, there's still some stuff in here that's really effective, but... I think just from a storytelling a storytelling component. Oh, wow, I mean it's it's been you're you're trying to make me believe that Ed Lorraine did some of these things that she got blown against a wall in London uh, again with Valak the nun that and then that was the demon that possessed a ghost to possess a family like oh my goodness uh, I guess I I never realized that in those initial viewings I guess I was present and there just to be spooked but in thorough analysis. Yikes. Uh, it's been problematic to say the least. You know, I, I knew you were going to go with that. And when I sat there in the theater and that popped up at the bottom of the opening credits, I thought, Oh my God, here we go. Why do they need to keep this? And Jesse's just lost his mind again. He's already, he's already <laughs> one foot out the door. <laughs> um, yeah. We have one foot up, one foot out the, the, the crypt over there. Uh, yes. So, okay. Go seven ahead. films in, you know, like you said, seven films in, mm-hmm. I think, they're established and what this world is and what it means and what they've done and the experiments and investigations are established in a strange way. I know they don't really adhere to this, but I might argue, and I agree with you. This, that's not my answer. I'm just sidling sure. up. Yeah, to go, that's good. Um, I think in some ways it actually limits what they can do. Mm-hmm. Because although the suspension of disbelief or the shark has been jumped, maybe we've jumped the shark over the suspension of disbelief is stretched. There's still certain places that they can't quite get to with that. If they would just remove those based on a true story, five words, Mm -hmm. I think it opens up a lot more, not supernatural, but metaphysical. And that's where this movie is really going to dig into is the metaphysical piece. So I feel you, Jesse, it's a huge mistake. Um, It worked in a kind of a gimmicky way on one thing. Anybody that's a fan of the Warrens knows how to access them on the internet and it's just not needed anymore. Mm -hmm. Good answer. Can I give you mine? Yes, please. It's the opposite of what yours was for the successes. Mm -hmm. I think they've done a masterful job of creating a cadre of villains, whether they are proper or support characters. And mostly 
this is crazy. Mm-hmm. None of them yep. are developed as well as the supporting characters are. As if we go with Valak yep. or certainly Annabelle, those characters have better backstory and a more linear plot insofar as what they're trying to accomplish than most of the characters that we meet. I mean, the Crooked Man, like supposedly is getting his own film, so that remains to be seen. But I think their biggest failure is making more interested, making me more interested in the supporting story sure. than the actual story. Story. No, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, you're you're very drawn and gravitate towards these things that they're making, but then you're you're also right when they get their own standalone film, they don't deliver like in the slightest. So. Oh, I think it was two. It was number. I think it was two. We were together, mm-hmm. and man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You got up for a minute to I don't know what it was. Go get something, go, and I made some go little pee, go off pee. The cuff comment. <laughs> and you said, "Yes, <laughs> take the leak." Yeah. yeah, and I think you said to me, "Matt, I don't think you like The Conjuring that much." And to I which said it was during Annabelle, wasn't it? Yeah, and it hit me like Jesus. You know what? You're right. We have talked for two plus years about the genius of what's in the basement in the Warren's museum. And the truth is short of that, we'll see if it changes today. <laughs> there's been thorough disappointment around all of those artifacts in there I and the stories that were being put in there in the story itself. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, I know. I feel, I feel your pain there. Uh, I think it's been a, a, a good rewatch for us to, you know, talk about these movies, but also a good rewatch for, for us to further assess how we feel about them. And I think that's an important part of film criticism is you can, you can like one thing and then go back and be like, yeah, you know what? Some of this doesn't work. And I, I like it more the other way where you go see it and it's like, you know what? I didn't care much for it. And you revisit and you're like, you know what? I was kind of a little wrong on that. Let me change my tune a bit. I'm going to ask you a question. This might be hard to answer, but do you remember the first time, you went back and rewatched the film that in your youth you loved and later on in life you're like realized just how terrible it was. Do you remember what that first film was? Oh, let me think. Uh, the the films from my youth they're they're a little difficult because there's the whole nostalgia factor, but I do remember the first it literally just appeared to me uh, where you where you normally sit. Uh I remember <laughs> in the theater loving Mission Impossible 2. Oh, wow. And then like five or six years later, I went and revisited it probably before the third movie. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a a heaping uh, pile of shit. Uh, (laughs) This is terrible. (laughs) Tom Cruise, you know, dangling from the mountain and that stupid virus thing that they're going after. Oh, yeah. I think that was the first one that I was love the adrenaline rush that it gave me when I was 10. But then when I was 15, Mm. 16. This is kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So I'd probably, what about you? Did, did you remember? Yeah, I do. Cause it was part of my freshman English and high schools about me presentation to the class. So oh, we nice. had to make a coat of arms mm. and on that court of coat of arms were four things that it was just a practice, you know, public speaking, but mm-hmm. get to know me in the class to all of my classmates. And at that time, Bottom right corner of my coat of arms was my favorite movie of all time. And you're going to die when I tell you what it was. Because okay. this aged as bad as Mission Impossible 2, if not worse. At that time, it was The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Oh, my oh I know. Like, <laughs> I've watched that. I've watched that. I've watched that recently. And yeah, you're right. That uh, one definitely uh, does not hold up to like how you 
initially remember it. Rough. That, like how that movie even got made. I know it was him and maybe he had a friend. That movie is reheated steam and pile of shit. That is <laughs> awful. <laughs> Terrible film. And that was number one on my list. Oh. And then about the time I finished up my uh, freshman year to my sophomore, going to my sophomore summer, I watched that. And I was watching with my little brother and we sat down and I looked at him and he looked at me and we both said, dude, this sucks. And dude, that did suck. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's, so, that's heartbreaking when you just got to like, yeah, come to terms with like, you know what? This isn't great. But then you can yin yeah. and yang. You can be like, yeah, this is great. I'm not touching it again. Or you could be like, you know what? It's that's where that nostalgia piece comes in for me because there's a lot of movies like from like the nineties that like aren't great that I just love watching just because they remind me of growing up. Um, but that's not this film because it's only two days old. Uh, I love your answers, Matt. I love that question. Just looking at this universe in totality and honestly, next to Marvel, this is probably the closest, most successful cinematic universe to make it to eight films is uh, pretty remarkable. You know what I mean? Well said. Yeah. Yes, you're spot on. Maybe Harry Potter, but eight films is one more than Harry Potter. So yeah, you got that. You're right. Yep. Excellent. Well, uh, so here I'm toasting you through the phone. Ching. Ching. There you go. I think you hear that little ding. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can't wait to do this. Uh, this is this, this is going to be wild, but let's get to our review breakdown of The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. Save your servant who trusts in you, my God. Let him find in you, Lord, fall my tower in the face of the enemy. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, against the powers of the darkness of this world, against wickedness. You're not fine. This kid's turning into the thing on the table over here. Um, Pretty rough. I know. I need a really good chiropractor, isn't he? <laughs> as he pretzels himself into uh, into a, into <laughs> a, a demonic thing. But let's start here at yep. the beginning, Matt, as we usually do. So it's 1981. This is uh, four years after the events of the last film. And yep. here we are with the Glatzel family as they're trying to quell the demons of little eight-year-old David Glatzel here in uh, in Brookfield, Connecticut. And some of this is, I guess, interesting. I mean, when I, when I try to think of just how the, all of these films have opened, probably arguably we'll probably maybe be in agreement. I think the Annabelle creation opening is probably the strongest. I mean, that inciting yeah. incident of the little girl getting hit by the car, I mean, tells you all you need to know about the seriousness of the film only to just ruin it seconds later. Uh, <laughs> this is, I think another fairly decent opening, but Matt, where I like almost like turned the movie off had it not been for this podcast, if I can steal your line. Oh, wow. This f- opening starts stealing from, all kinds of yep. other horror films, mainly The Exorcist. Boy, you uh, took the words right out of my mouth. So let me give you um, some context here. Mm-hmm. When I finished this film two nights ago or last night, uh, my wife and daughter had gone to see Cruella. So we did the quick exchange of what the film was like. And my explanation of the beginning was it starts off with a pretty solid opening that has me interested, but it is, the B minus version of just about any exorcism movie that I've seen before. And by choosing to do a little boy, 
Yeah. There's not enough variance between that poor little boy. I think his name is David. Yep. And, and, and wow, and, how about that? Yeah. And Reagan, and you're right, it was the spine bending the wrong way, the guttural moans, the debris flying at them from nondescript cabinets with China. It was just so cookie cutter. And then I'm going to say one other thing, too, okay. that I got so tired of in this film. Okay. If I see The Conjuring go one more time with I'm possessed and you can tell by my opaque eyes, <laughs> I'm literally going to go see a different film. I, that, that's such a weak comeback. I'm literally going to go see there. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I know my it, eyes might roll back in my head. It's so bad. I know what you mean. You said the B minus version. I think that's being kind. This might be like the D plus version if we're being, yeah. ki- if we're being kind, but Matt, I was infuriated because when whoever this priest is that's in this movie shows up at the house, they literally do the priest getting out of the cab, silhouetted against light through the windows, like Father Marin in The Exorcist. And I'm literally screaming internally here. Uh, but I have a little sound clip for us. I think uh, Mr. Tony Stark says it best. Thought we wouldn't notice, but we did. You're not going to get away with that little <laughs> ripoff no. without, without you know, seasoned horror people, you know, watching. And they do it again just a few seconds later, you know, with all the stuff lying around and this kid turning into the thing and pretzeling himself where... I guess our, you know, our, our vision into this movie, uh, Arnie Johnson literally pulls a father Karras, uh, and says, go into me. He says, take me, take me. And then I had, I had to re-record audio from this film too. Come into me. God damn you. Take me. Matt, it's literally the same scene. You mean you've seen a priest get out of a taxi under a streetlight before and walk to a house as seen in the silhouetted image from the above window with another silhouette? You've seen that before? You know what this admits to me? Brutal. This this yeah, film admits defeat instantly, being that mm. we can't be better than The Exorcist, so we may as well do the things from it because that's what people are familiar with. Instead of trying to be original and make this film stand out on its own right, it's already you know, ad- admitting defeat, which this is weak. Like this is such a, for what could be an effective opening. I like that moment too. When the boys in the bathtub and the hands look like the shower rings, the fingers. Yeah. yeah. And then he's just bathed in blood from the faucet only to just be ruined like three minutes later. Uh, this, this is a bit of a rough opening here. I don't, I don't I think we're probably maybe, you know, going into some interesting territory here, but, like you said, I was kind of on board, but like I was getting distracted by, you know, all these just little aspects here in the beginning. So the beginning is compelling enough with some reheated moments that I was at least interested. But what I'm going to struggle with shortly hereafter is what exactly the relationship is with all of the people in this house to this little boy. Because yeah. not far long after this, after the demon jumps from the little boy and I have a whole thing on this too that doesn't make any sense but jumps from the the little boy into whatever the hell that guy's name is um, Arnie oh, thank you and Arnie we leave that house or we go to another portion of that house that's 
a kennel, a boarding kennel for dogs. And we don't establish, at least to me, that's his sister. We understand that that's his sister's boyfriend. So maybe that's his future brother-in-law. Yeah. Um, what the hell are the parents doing? Because dad runs upstairs to get some little bandage to remove, God forbid, a little tiny piece of glass from his leg um, to leave his, like the parents in that were non-existent. Mm-hmm. And I just want to sour mesh one thing here. Go ahead. Isn't a better opening because that couple, David, I'm sorry, Arnie and uh, the sister. Um, I'll look up her name. Jessica. Right. Mm-hmm. Jessica are going to be a couple. You know, what's a better opening is watching the groom struggle with possession backstage before the wedding. Her name, her name is Debbie, but I applaud you for going with Jessica. <laughs> okay. Debbie, Jessica, <laughs> Stephanie, one of those. Yes. yes. <laughs> if that takes, it's going to, like, it's in the little boy long enough to just give us something interesting to watch at the beginning. Cause it spends mm-hmm. the rest of the movie in Arnie. Exactly. If it's in Arnie backstage prior to his wedding, like at the altar, the little boy can still be involved. The family can still be involved. We can seat them ready for this at the church, which gives the involvement of the non-secular peaceness, which kind of tries to play a role, but doesn't ever get there because it happens in the church. And this guy's struggling, fighting with this thing that's battling for him. And then as we get decoded later by Isla, Isla, whatever the hell that is, it Isla, Isla, the girl, the very prim and proper school marmy um, daughter of, you know, I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm looking it up. I think it's Isla, I-S-L-A, Isla, Isla. Um, we get an introduction into one of the three conduits that she absolutely has to have in order, and then I hope we get into this too, <laughs> to, to meet the needs of whatever demon she's meeting, whatever just general garden variety of badness, sacrificial need she is, which is the lover. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I, I love that we're improving and taking elements that could definitely work because there's pieces here. I mean, we talk about family a lot on the podcast, and they're yeah. playing with a family dynamic here with Arnie and Debbie and and David and, and what that dynamic is and, you know, how they become, became cursed. And I got to tell you, I was, I watched the movie and then, you know, I was doing some research while I was watching it. So I was doing a lot of pausing. So, um, can't do that in a movie theater, but I thought it was interesting. It kind of got me for once the based on the truth. Oh yeah. well, Well, let's remember the titles that come up that again, for the third time, tell us that this is Ed and Lorraine Warren's most intense case that they've ever done in their career. But -hmm. based on a true story, so I dug into the actual case, and I was fairly impressed that a lot of this is rooted in a lot of fact. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren assisted in a quasi-exorcism of little David Gletzel, and Mm -hmm. allegedly through testimony, uh, Arnie allowed the demon to come into him. And then from that, we go into... You know, the murder with uh, the dog kennel guy, the tenant of that person, like all of that happened by the book. So I was like, oh, my God, like for once, it feels like we're actually following the template, the true life template of what really happened. And for what we talked about last week that we really wanted from this film was, man, 
can you imagine just the conjuring but as a courtroom drama like that could be like really interesting nope jesse forget about that because we're gonna spend about two minutes in a courtroom in this movie yeah the stakes are pretty high right they said it if you guys can't figure out what exactly proof is necessary to show that Arnie's possession was in fact legitimate and not some ruse to beat the rap, then this kid's going to burn or he's going to fry. Okay. All that works. Mm -hmm. The problem is they incarcerate Arnie so quickly that they leave no room for anything to happen in the courtroom. And if I was going to say, courtroom you could say oh you mean courtroom drama as genre the reason for that jesse Mm -hmm. is because it's built to be dramatic hence the term courtroom drama no all that's gone because it's courtroom drama in an institution for the mentally deranged aka prison and in a lot of that it's solitary confinement they basically render arnie mostly useless yeah. And the demon then is mostly useless. And one more question I got to ask you before going any further. Okay. Is this thing a demon or is this thing a human? I thought it was a witch again. <laughs> Cause. Oh yeah. Or well, yeah. Okay. A witch. That's what I mean. So a woman, female witch trying to get another Toby like demon, it's bounty so that it can curry favor with the devil. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. But what what happens with that is we have no rules and things are allowed to happen however they see fit on screen. And again, I call, you know, you know, to testimony here. We're in the Rice Mile court now if we're not going to get court scene in this in this movie. Yeah. And we've been hard on the werewolf for like being kind of just, you know, much like the Hulk, one note destruction, this and that. But man, the werewolf has the coolest set of rules on why it exists in the natural world. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to kill the bloodline. It can only be killed by silver bullets. You uh, become one on a full moon. I mean, there's three right there that you can base a whole film on in these yeah. demon and witch movies. Oh, no, I buried some totem shit under your house and now you're cursed. Get out of here. I mean, it's just so contrived. It, it reminds me a lot of when, when we sit down and write and how much mental energy we spend on we can't do that because it's too convenient or we can't do that because uh, that's just preposterous. Uh, forget that, man. We're just going to start doing that because all of these films in the last four, three weeks have done that. The things okay, happen. So you said three. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I'm done. You said three things that are spot on. Mm-hmm. You said contrived. You said totem and you said something else. Um, preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. If we remove any of the things that this film bases its story on, which have all been used in another film, there's nothing left. Okay. So we already talked about Mm -hmm. the exorcism bit of the little boy from the exorcist. Clearly when you're talking about the courtroom drama, you know, I'm thinking about Emily Rose. Absolutely. Third, if there is a totem that is placed underneath somebody's bed or house or hidden, which I guess allows access to the netherworld or a signal for the demon to come to, uh, they don't really ever totally explain that. Mm -mm. Then now we're talking about the Blair witch. If we're talking about witches trying to make the demon happy so that Satan will recognize their fealty as valid and give them more power. 
Now we're talking about paranormal activity three. And sadly, in the list of things that we just, or I just rattled off, yeah. some of those films in there, I'm not the biggest fan of. Yep. What? I don't know what's new, Jesse. Like, well, that's, that's the problem. Well, I can tell you right away, and I'm gonna, I'll play a little sound clip right after this. I'm instantly disappointed because... I really thought this film could have had its basis in courtroom proceedings and testimony yep. and jury deliberation and yep. Ed and Lorraine kind of doing something in the middle of all that. Yep. And this, that could have been a, like a tight, you know, suspense thriller, you know, we're taking it a little out of horror, but now we're like wondering, man, is this kid going to like get the death penalty? Like what's going to happen? And mm-hmm. it instantly after this scene, it becomes this. I just talked to a friend of mine in the prosecutor's office. He's going to go for the death penalty. I'll build the case, but that kid is going to either live or die depending on what you two find. We won't let him down. I hope not. Keep me posted. So what now? Never had to prove a possession after the fact. Demons don't just disappear like this. There's something else going on here, something that we missed the first time. Where do we start? Matt, from this moment forward, everything that takes place after this, other than the final, you know, courtroom scene, is mm-hmm. total bullshit. It did not happen in real life. Ed and Lorraine Warren didn't go on this Horcrux uh, quest to find Very these well totems. Said. And find these bodies and wait till I, I got a whole thing on that coming up here in a little bit. We are literally padding the film with fiction, but the film's being sold to us is based on a true story because it becomes the Ed and Lorraine Warren scrummaging around underneath the basements, looking around in the woods, going to talking to creepy people at uh, old priests, uh, yep. uh, fooling around in the morgue. And again, like what you said, uh, you couldn't wait to get to it. The based on a true story thing. Like I am just, I'm so done. I mean, like you can't tell me that these two people did this in reality when the factual record says no. So then why are they selling it to us like this? I mean, they should have dropped that from the first film and, you know, sold the rest of this series as complete fiction. Cause then I could Mm -hmm. probably roll with it a little bit better. Yep. That's well said, Jesse. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I found myself really struggling with was Ed's desire to be seen as legitimate. And if this boy's life depends on the defense that the Warrens are mustering for him, which is he's been possessed by the devil, well, Ed's entire purpose is not only questioned, but in dependent and this boy's life is dependent on him telling the court in an irrefutable way that there is such thing as possession. And this young boy was not in control of his own faculties because this demon, whatever had control of them. And that sounds like a bunch of, Bullshit, Jesse. I love what you said. And had this been a better written universe, we've been we've really hearkened on how we want to see more of the snake oil aspect of Ed and trying to drum up business. It's their income, Matt. I mean, that's how they make money, yeah. these two. To yeah. squash all that in this film, to go up on the stand and put 
financial gain behind for the sanctity of this boy's life. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. That's the movie I want to watch. And instead of that, you know what we got? <laughs> we got a moment where the, like a comedic relief moment where the lawyer is sitting in the courtroom at the arraignment with a look on her face. Like she's just seen a ghost, mm-hmm. like sitting there very stoically a statue. Oh my gosh. Just saw a ghost. Cause he says to Ed tells that same lawyer, why don't you come over? I'll introduce you to Annabelle. Cause we couldn't have a movie go by and not reference Annabelle again. I'll take you and I'll introduce you to Annabelle. Yeah. And then you'll believe that there's such thing as possession. And then we go to immediately hard cut to the arraignment. And that same lawyer is sitting at the desk, white knuckling it like she's just seen a ghost. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was it. That was the extent of how legitimate Ed and Lorraine's endeavors are. Mm -hmm. And if this is what butters their bread, remember that daughter that they never really seem to care about in this film. Well, she's not even in this one. She's her. not even in this one. <laughs> she's hardly in it. Like two lines. Then this puts food in her belly. And if Ed doesn't win this case and Lorraine, if they don't win this case, not only does that boy get the death penalty, but then he's exposed for the hack that he probably was. It's so much better already. Because well, what it becomes is... We were just a phone call away, my friend. Yes. No, exa- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we've, we've improved. Warner Brothers, call us. We'll fix the movie in a phone call. We don't even need to see you in person. Uh, exactly. What, uh, after the film ended, I had to go back because I was like, okay, so what, what did the this kind of quest of Ed and Lorraine turn into? Because I'm glad I played this clip because it proves it perfectly. They're going to go out into the world and f- try and find evidence to prove his innocence. How in God's name, with all the stuff that they're about to go through, falling off the cliff, talking to corpses, scrummaging around in a uh, creepy priest's uh, witch lair, uh, how are they going to present any of that evidence in front of a jury and not have them laugh in their face? Like, this is a horrible plan. Uh, this kid's gonna, this kid's gonna fry. (laughs) (laughs) It has no chance. (laughs) He's gonna fry. Exactly. Like, like, um, how are they gonna go up in front of the stand and be like, well, you know, like, there was this creepy fat corpse chasing me around and I was swinging a sledgehammer and all the evidence. We left it at that guy's house, but they're gonna bring it, like, I don't know how this was the plan. And again, this is the fiction piece. This did not happen. Uh, the way it played out in at the end of the film is how it actually played out. So they don't even present any of that evidence in this movie. So it just right. becomes something for they're in the movie. We need something for them to do. And I was actually really shocked. I thought we would have spent a little bit more time with Arnie Johnson and his fiance to be that he, you know, hasn't asked to marry like that, that could have gone somewhere. Mm-hmm. And instead, we spend time with Ed and Lorraine Warren. But like, oh my goodness, uh, let's talk about let's talk about the totems, Matt. So, oh, okay. Like they talk about in 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 those scenes is well, we got to we're going to start evidence. We'll start from the beginning. So they go back to the house and they kind of try to find the root of the possession. And you and I probably at this point think this is a demon, right? What's going mm-hmm. on here? And then uh, Lorraine goes and. What did you think of that uh, waterbed sequence? That little boy is, um, he's one of the little children from uh, The Haunting of the Hill House, the Netflix show. He played uh, young uh, Luke. 
Yeah. Yeah. If you need, um, to, if you I thought it was really good the first time I saw it. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. No. Yeah. Part four. Yeah. The Dream Master. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're ripping off another horror film, so yep. we can't even an, another original creation. So they start scrounging around the basement here, and Lorraine finds this like Blair Witch. <laughs> I'm glad you said Blair Witch because I was honestly thinking that, but I didn't say it. Uh, it's exactly what it is. It's almost like a little kind of like Texas chainsaw bone sculpture of like, uh, just like, it's like a totem is what they, they end up calling it. Mm-hmm. Now in story terms, this is something that like, I know is just like, this is your bread and butter. You love item hunting and trying yeah. to collect yeah. the elements to squash evil. And here it is just, it's just an item to get us to the next place. And then how we find out like, Oh, this girl just put them in random spots throughout the town. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah. But talk about it. What, what, okay. do, what do you kind of think? I mean, it, I think it does present an interesting path that this story can take. Now, again, the execution is my biggest argument in this whole universe. I think they they failed this item uh, mightily. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because if you got the chance to kind of... Um break it up a little bit and stop it here and there. And you missed it too. It wasn't that I just missed it. It just was that it wasn't there. Here's the question we have to ask as we're searching for these totems, because I suppose the totems will provide proof in Arnie's defense that he was possessed, (laughs) which is like you said, this kid's going to fry. Uh, yeah, that judge then, is that just gonna laugh you in the face. He's like, "Okay, you brought some some KFC bones in front of me. Like, what is this?" Exactly. Oh, you found a goat a goat skull and brought it in. Oh, yeah. Okay, he's innocent. Um, the question you have to ask is, why were these specific people chosen, mm-hmm. and how many of them do we need? Because as the plot unfolds, what we're going to come to find is the number is three. Uh, the was it the innocent, the lover, and um, the religious man. Those are the three embodiments of these totems and where they're possessed insofar as why the demon is pursuing them, the people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have any other better way to say that, and none of that made sense because none of this makes sense. Yeah. But I love this Here's the thing, everybody. Yeah. It's not a demon. It's a woman who poor thing hasn't eaten in, you know, months. That's probably why she's such a bitch. If she's just hungry. Um, and it becomes a cult thing. Uh, kind of with like a singular member of the Ram cult that once a REM, the Ram cult that once upon a time, the third piece that, in it, this film that we're going to be introduced into happened to bring to justice. And then let me just found, say real quick, uh, real quick. You said yeah. R A M. You didn't say R E M. This isn't the people worshiping at the altar of Michael Stipe, right? <laughs> Shiny, happy people. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Gardening at night is might be what we're talking about. Trying to find these, these, uh, totems. These totems though. Yep. I, think, I think what you asked me was what about all that? And the question is, I, I mean, I guess it gives them something to do. Mm-hmm. So story-wise, it's something to do, but to the bigger context, what end does it present? Ed and Lorraine Warren 
come to some information about two girls and a stabbing that took place in a forest, some um, old wives tale about a woman being born with a child or a woman bearing a child with a tart on the outside. <laughs> I just all of this just random nonsense that I guess is tied to this cult of Ram, but there's no. <sighs> I'm going to play, I'll play a clip. Cause this is, right. this is almost yeah. like the explanation scene. Cause they present the bones to the sister and then uh, the assistant. And this is what we're doing. It's a witch's totem used by Satanists in their rituals. Remember how I told you that an inhuman spirit needs to be invited? And you couldn't imagine how David could do that? Well, you were right. He didn't. We think David was cursed. And on the night of the exorcism, the curse was passed from David into Arnie. Cursed? Are you saying... Someone did this to us. On purpose? We've heard of satanic rituals like this. A demon is summoned, the possessed individual takes a life, and the demon departs. Which is why Arnie was able to read from the Bible afterwards. Yeah. And we think whoever cursed David used this to draw the demon. Now, man, I can't, I don't know if you can, like, recollect back to the 80s, but, like, sa- satanic ritual practices was, like, a big thing in the news at the time. It was, like, a thing happening across the country. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's what they're trying to pull into this, but it's pro- it's problematic because like you're you're so right. It becomes just something for them to do. And I'm glad you brought up the two girls that also disappeared. Now, this is complete insanity. So, Ed and Lorraine Warren go to the cops of this town and they they start talking about these two missing girls and if they can find the missing girls, it's like it's breadcrumb clues to get to the next thing. Matt. Yeah. The police up, I, I don't know. This is a small town. They're probably just like, whatever, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But p- clairvoyance and psychosomatics and demonologists very rarely get involved with actual police procedurals because it's a lot of hullabaloo. But yep. this police guy is just like, okay, yeah, go whatever. Go, like, you can go in the forest and I'll go with you. Like, this would never happen when a clairvoyant or a psychic or any of those people get involved in a true crime case. It's usually the family, family's last ditch effort to like find something. Why would a police detective put all his stock in these two and their mystical ways? Oh gosh, like this is just so silly. Well, and the other thing too is you forgot that we've introduced another element of conflict to this and that's Ed is suffering from a terrible heart condition that makes him mostly useless through the entirety of this film Mm -hmm. and then only makes the plot that much more muddy because as he can't follow Lorraine very fast because he'll have a heart attack and she's like, a dog with the fresh, like a fresh basset hound with a sense of a hair on its nose mm-hmm. in the forest. He can't keep up with her no. and he can't keep up with her to do what mm-hmm. to, to find the remains of this girl that they know is already dead because the girl who stabbed her. Well, what, um, what it ends up guilty. Like, oh, what it ends up becoming is, they're going to find this girl and then use the clairvoyant touch through that girl to find the next clue. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so, I mean, you, 
It's yeah, it's Jesse, pretty. We're talking about pictures on the cork board with a few pieces of twine on some stick pins. I wish. And we, this kid's life depends on that. This, like you said, this kid is gonna fry. Yeah, he's got no chance. Did you catch the little kind of nod? And I, I guess this was kind of nice, but I don't know. Also, a little silly too. Maybe this is just cinematic universe fodder. But when Ed's recovering, they're at the house and. They get a batch of uh, a bouquet of flowers from the Perrin family. Did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. I was, yes, I, I, was I, I couldn't decide if I was like, "That's a nice touch," or I was like, "Oh man, this movie's trying pretty hard to make this whole thing like seem like the same world." <laughs> world building, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that, yeah, I, I did pick up on that, and at least they are acknowledging one of their former allies, and not just the bad guys. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Uh, let's move to the. Well, we'll move, hold on. Let, let, let me get this out real quick before you ask. You don't forget this question. Okay. When you played that sound just a minute ago, mm-hmm. I was trying really hard to listen and understand exactly what in the hell they were talking about. Everybody, go back a couple minutes and listen to that. It is such an expedition exposition dump of nonsense. None of that makes any sense. None of it. We found this. It's from the witch. It's passed on to another witch, but like none of that does anything to move the premise of this cult forward. I'm more confused now than I was when I saw the film in real time. That is an absolute pile of bullshit garbage jesse you know what i've noticed these last three weeks is all of these films have that moment they have the exposition dump to explain the evil or the conduit of what's happening and it and it's usually patrick wilson delivering it is and then we just have to take it as face value because the film's going to continue with or without us so you're either on board or you're not (laughs) right yeah right okay fair Let's get into the forest because this scene was pretty crazy. Uh, but before we get into all of that nonsense, I really want to ask you because in Conjuring 1, I thought I think we were both pretty affected by, you know, Bathsheba and some of those uh, scares like that moment, that clip I played of Nancy and the shadows and the thing was behind her. Like, that's a great yeah. moment. Annabelle yeah. creation, we were both, I, I rewound it for us uh, when Annabelle's in the chair and we saw those two eyes in the darkness. Yeah. And then last week, I, I literally told you it's my favorite moment in this entire franchise so far with the nun, with the painting. I think it's done so well. Mm-hmm. Be real with me. Yeah. Was there anything in this movie that scared you or made you pause? Because I got to say, there wasn't anything in this that like even like made me flinch. Uh, the naked corpse was a bit troubling, um, but it wasn't anything to the level that the previous three things you just mentioned were. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you asked me this cause I wanted to ask you something and I guess I'll, so no the answer in short is no. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you something though. Okay. You struggled for three ish weeks now with the based on a true story moniker as this film is a little bit more grounded with the antagonistic presence that is a mortal, mm-hmm. that is a witch. And it's not quite as far flung as attack dolls and, um, you know, kaleidoscope, whatever the hell the crooked man, what's that thing called again? Um, that little top thing that they, yeah, the crooked man. Yeah. yeah but what's that, what's the, 
the device that he comes oh, out of. Oh, I'll, I'll have to pull that you, up. You said it. Yeah, you said it. But anyway, that thing. Like, that, that is so far out there. This is an actual human that isn't quite as fantastic mm-hmm. as the other things. Did that work for you, or was it just boring? Uh, well, to kind of go to my little flight question, uh, a zoetrope. I got to I got to remember that's Francis Ford Coppola's company, American Zoetrope. Yeah, you're right. Uh, to go back to my flight question, this film honestly sticks out less than the others because the antagonist is so unremarkable looking. She looks yeah. like uh, Mrs. Danvers from uh, or uh, right uh, from Rebecca. Yep, <laughs> her black dress and her little kind of like white trim. Compare sure compare that to the nun Annabelle Bathsheba. Like this is something you were literally going to forget the second the movie ends. Yeah. Uh, so it should work more for me because it's a little more human. It's a cult member. Uh, someone doing satanic ritual practices in uh, Connecticut here, but it mm-hmm. is not going to leave as much of an impact on me as those other antagonists. So I got to tell you, it's a bit of a miss for me. That's troubling too. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. I forget where you were, but um, thank you. Yeah. I, well, we're in, the, we're in the forest now. We're looking for these, these two girls and I got a whole thing I, I kind of want to do here because, you know, Ed Warren died in, 2002 2006 yeah and i think lorraine died in 2019 or 2018 so she was around for some of those movies and i actually think she went to the set of the first film and walked around and was like yeah this is it's playing out how it went happened and i'm like okay thank you uh Mm -hmm. but she died and it almost seems like this franchise went well to hell with it fuck it uh, throw throw Lorraine off a cliff now. This never happened. Let's just throw her off a cliff and let's see what happens. And I'm just like, oh my goodness! Like you're you're really trying to sell this thing to me that th- th- this moment where Ed has to leap at the last minute to s- and it turns into cliffhanger has to save her from the 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 the, the edges of the cliff in some terrible CGI. Yeah. I gotta also note. Oh yeah. Uh. Oh my goodness! Like, why is this? Why is this even in the movie? Why does the movie feel like it needs to have this moment to create suspense and uh, intensity with your lead characters? You don't need to throw them off a cliff. Just make the situations interesting and compelling. To take true alleged true story to this point is so. Matt, we've jumped the shark and the shark caught up to us and ate us at the other end of the, the diving pool because this is, this is, I'm so done with this. And it was um, in the trailer gonna, too. It was in the trailer this moment. Well, you forecast, I'm worried about this whole cliff sequence that you talked about. And sure enough, you had good reason to be. Here's another thing I want to pose to you though, that makes it even worse. Think about whatever the hell plan Isla's goal is with this demon witchcraft bullshit that's going on. Why would they pull Lorraine off the cliff? Why would they, why would that thing want Lorraine to die? I don't know. It needs Lorraine to be involved so that it can then find the path. We've got back into the multiple doorways that Lorraine opens that allows easy come and go to this world and other worlds. It needs Lorraine. So if that thing that hand up almost pulls Lorraine off that cliff 
kills her and pulls her into the water where the dead body of the stabber mm-hmm. girl is. Yeah, they somehow find then, it. Yep. Then it defeats its own purpose. Lorraine doesn't check any of the three boxes. She's not the lover. She's not the religious person. And she's not the uh, the child. Right? It wants Ed. It wants the priest. And it wants, I guess, David. And then it substitutes David for Arnie. Like, we're all over the place. But the point is, Lorraine doesn't make any of those totems and the pursuit of what the totem told the demon to attack. And this is a problem too. further along. It's just a bullshit cheap jump scare. It's the problem with the rules too, because I'm like, Oh, the witch has supreme reign over this forest oh, and can throw an, and can throw in. You just said she can the throw witch has supreme reign over a forest. I'm fucking out. Yeah. Goodbye. And, what? She, and, and she can throw a non cursed participant over a cliff because the movie says it's okay. And this is, again, of the problem with the rules. It's why I love vampires and werewolves and slasher films, for that matter. And it's they fall within a set of, you can do these things, but you can't do that because you follow without the formula. And yep. it's within that formula is where you make something unique and interesting. Look at Fright Night. Look at American Werewolf in London. Look at Scream. It's you toy with the formula and you make it your own. This film is saying, well, fuck the formula. Fuck making it our own because we've already ripped off three or four movies and we're going to rip off a fourth one in the third act with Ed Warren. wonder if you picked yep. up on that. Uh, mm. we're, we're so all over the place. I do want to ask you another another thing here and then we'll kind of get on to the, the third act of this of this movie. Another James Wan creation, and we might want to do this on the podcast because I think a lot of the problems we have with this franchise, I wonder how it would fare better in this franchise, and it's insidious because mm-hmm. they identify the netherworld as the further, and they have a clairvoyant in that, but then it's rooted within the familial dynamic with Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne in that. Yeah, I wonder if it just works better in that. And again, it's fiction. They can play fast and loose with the the rules of reality and the and the the spooks and specters, whereas this one's really constrained in my viewpoint with the true story moniker. I don't know, Matt. We might want to do that one because I might give that movie a higher rating because of it checks more boxes and can get away with more because it's not as constricted as this franchise is. Well, you might need it just for a cleansing of sorts, dude. I mean, <laughs> get away from the based on a true story thing that we keep struggling with. A little bit, um, yep. I'm, I'm so hung up right now on these totems because when you start talking about rules and a structure or nomenclature around how this demonic possession occurs, these totems are custom made for that. Yep. Who put them there? Why did they choose them there? What does it allow? And what else I'm going to tell you is you can tell how close they were because we talked, we didn't even talk about this, but do you remember early on? I don't even know. I think it's maybe a party that Arnie is at. He walks into the house and he finds that rat. He sees that rat run across the door or run across the floor. Mm -hmm. And then the rat in a very Ray Milland lost weekend kind of way jumps into the wall (laughs) and a big black orifice appears. Yep. It looks like literally like the, an anus. Yep. And Arnie begins looking deep into that. Right. And yep. you're thinking like, Oh my gosh, get your face out of there. It's filthy. Something's going to come out and get you. Nothing came of that. Nothing was built upon that. It was just this, and I mean, it. I'm not trying to be gross. 
it was just this very dark, you know, anus that showed up on the wall that was where um, rats, I guess, chose to live. It, I know. Yeah, you're what right. What was that all about? Yeah. There was no totem in the wall, Jesse. Mm-hmm. The totem was underneath. underneath the floor in the room where the waterbed was. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? We have hands appearing on the opposite side of cliffs to jerk people into the water just for general garden variety villainy. We have anuses in the wall that have zero significance in the context of what the film means. We are filling screen time with nothing except just stock model footage, horror tropes. That's it. Let me mention one thing I was kind of shocked about, and we'll get to the third act here in a second. Uh, I was actually surprised how little they used Arnie, the character and the sister throughout the rest of this movie. And it, it was really the most compared to, you know, we, we paused and stopped the other conjuring films and be like, man, when do the Warrens get involved in this thing? And it was usually at the hour close to the hour mark for both conjuring films. Yeah, well into the second act, you're right. This is a different kind of tune here where they're fully involved through most of the film. Yeah. And it's working a whole lot less for me. I don't know. It, it, again, different director, different people writing the screenplays compared to the, the Hayes uh, duo from the last couple. Mm-hmm. But let's kind of get to the explanation. So they, they go to this. And it's so silly how these things happen, too. And, and this they go visit a priest that a priest of the area and he kind of uh, spins them this whole thing on on these totems and these whole things, but who uh, just happens to be an expert in religious sex and decoding satanic cults just happens to be the leading authority mm-hmm. of the area on that particular. Like, what? Mm-hmm. What? Small town. Okay, go ahead. Keep uh, with it. Hang on one one second. Uh, and he tells them for the first, he tells them about the Ram cult. And that's where we kind of get that whole name and the occultist aspect. And part of me is intrigued. I'm like, this is kind of cult, the Jim Jonesy esque thing. I was like, that's interesting to me because it's different than Valak and then different than Bathsheba. And at least we're going down a different path. But yeah. uh, we get, are you ready? Are you ready for another exposition dump? Because here we go. <laughs> Thank God uh, their uh, sidekick, their videographer, was able to unearth this piece of evidence. I got something to show you, too. I found it in the Stragaria. It's early Renaissance. The church used it to identify and persecute witchcraft. Now, my Latin is rusty, but I think this is talking about human sacrifice. One by murder and the other by suicide. Does it say how to stop it? Oh. Yeah, it looks like you can break the curse by destroying the altar it was cast from. But this part looks like Aramaic. This next part, I, I can't read it. Rice, smile audience, I need you just to think about films in general and going to the movies and thinking about every movie you've ever watched in totality. This plot hinges... The conclusion climax is Ed smashing the altar with a sledgehammer. And the only reason he knows how to do that is because his videographer stumbled upon this book that Mm -hmm. tells him to do so in a scene that we don't see. If that moment doesn't happen, Ed doesn't know what to do and they don't know how to defeat evil. 
That is some of the worst screenwriting I think I've I've seen. There's worse movies I've seen. But, Matt, oh, my goodness, that is so placed in your lap of we got to end this movie. We don't know how. Here you go. Here's a book that he found in something I don't even, I can't even, I don't even know what he said in that moment. He was doing his own investigation. Weak. Super weak. Super weak. Super weak, especially when it's not been discussed. And we're going to, I mean, are you sure you didn't look into the Egyptian book of the dead? That's how on the nose mm-hmm. a book, not even a, a named book, not uh, Martin Luther's 95 thesis, just straight up a Renaissance book has this information in it that I happen to find. And it's an Aramaic, which is going to lead us to this other priest. It is so poorly done. Here's the other thing too, that's maddening to me. When they use the word altar, they mean like stone table. Why not use altar in the sense that it's the representation or an embodiment or a metaphor like the altar as a representative. Right? Have you ever used it, used that term used in that capacity? Yep. It's an, it's an altar, right? Mm-hmm. No, he literally means like sepulcher, altar. What you see on the table at church, like the altar. You have to destroy the altar. Why not destroy the altars, which would then be, what are they? <gasps> They've got to be the totems. And then those things finally matter. And the quest now becomes, we've got to find each one of these totems because there were seven people in this cult. And for us to do away with it, right? Like there's a quest, yep. Jesse. Yeah, exactly. And what, <laughs> I know I'm stealing from Harry Potter, but I mean, in this place, yeah. this movie hasn't stolen anything from any other film. So why would it start now? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead, he literally means stone table that has (laughs) this goblet and some black candles and no one else present. Well, if you want to get even more contrived and convenient. Can you? Okay. Jeez. They're trying to find out the location. I wonder where this could be. They said there was water and this and that. Oh, my God. (laughs) It just so happens to be in the priest that they've already visited, and it's his daughter. Oh my Imagine that. goodness. Yeah. Uh, it's, what a small world <laughs> the Conjuring universe envelops. Uh, before we get to the final chase through the earthly catacombs in that guy's subterranean caverns. Subway? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to say about the morgue sequence or about Ed's vision where he's like almost kills Lorraine with the knife? Uh, it ties into this, but it's a question that I wanted to ask you about Lorraine. Mm-hmm. We've called her the talent in this partnership for a number of weeks now, where Ed maybe is the strategy, Lorraine is the talent, and she's clairvoyant. Do they, and by they, the writers and Juan and Chavez, take the clairvoyant too far with her or is it just that it's been introduced with this level of power too late? No, I love that you brought this up because I literally thought this while watching the movie and I was like, look, I'm a believer of certain things. Like I, I, like we talked in ghost story. I told you my little ghost happenstance experience and in my friend's uh, kitchen, I can, I can, I have a, a realm of believability with some of those things. But I literally thought during this movie, 
How does one acquire the gifts that Lorraine has been given to other than she's just been given them and we have to accept it because of some special spiritual significance, which <laughs> makes me groan a lot. Uh, that has to be it. How, how has Lorraine been gifted the powers to walk the spirit realm? Like what, what is this? And, and, and you're trying to make me say that this is where I would rather see and believe in this. If you want, I would much rather see the snake oil version of these two real people making all this up and and they were just kind of doing it for profit and trying to like make their own stake in the supernatural spiritual world because part of me wants to believe in it and the other part of me says bullshit and I, I guess I'm falling in the middle. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how yeah, Lorraine's powers, like what's the extent of her powers? Like she's able to fully visualize those girls in the forest to the point where she's knifing one of them in the actual act of murder that the one girl did to the other. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what Lorraine can't do in the spirit realm. It's too far. Yes. That's too much. Mm -hmm. It was one thing in the in the first conjuring to um, touch the mom's head, Lily Taylor's head and get her to remember her family. And that was short and lasted all of about six seconds and was actually set up and gave some significance to the photos. Like that was built. This is just like anytime we need some plot device to happen to move the story forward, we'll just give Lorraine, and I mean this, a dream sequence in order to move the story ahead. That's what those are. Those end up being dream sequences. Yep. And that bit in the morgue that you brought up, mm -hmm. when she grabs the corpse hand, if we can channel the memories of the dead in order to come to some conclusion that we can't just do because, you know, that would take some, some creativity and some linear writing. We have gone so far. Well, I, if you can channel the memories of the dead, then I have an idea, Jesse, why not go to the morgue and grab the hand of the guy that Arnie killed? Yeah. And then you know what you don't need to do? You don't have to search for these totems. Everything you have is right there, and you can actually see what happened. Yeah, but, and, I mean, and again, I'm stuck in the based on a true story realm, and you're trying to make this film's trying to make me believe, okay, this this fat corpse, this fat man corpse, like chased Ed around the, the, the morgue and in his house. Yeah. It's, a, it's quite a suspension at this point. This is, we're in the stratosphere compared to parts one and two of this franchise. But let's get yeah, to we're, we're, we're in real trouble here now. We're yeah. in real, real trouble. So Lorraine goes back to uh, the priest. Did you, did you recognize this guy, Matt? This is John Noble. Uh, he's a prominent figure in a film that I really like. He is the interim king in Lord of the Rings, the return of the king at Minas Tirith. Uh, oh, you're right. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a lot of films, but I saw that scraggly face, and I was like, I've seen that guy before, and he was munching on some chicken legs and some tomatoes as his men are biting it by the bullet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. I, no, I didn't snap on that till you said it, but now it does, yeah. But he, but he spins the yarn about how he had a daughter, and he taught his daughter all this occult crazy things, and then she just took it too far. Is that right in my interpretation of that? <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I think maybe taught her all of this occult stuff because her mother was part of that cult. And I kept waiting for him to say, this is the daughter, the offspring of the woman that was born or had the heart on the outside, that bit that I talked about earlier. I kept waiting for him to say, no, 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 we just said that that child died. That child didn't die. This is my daughter, Isla. And I, you know, as I was lonely and a man of the cloth and involved in this cult of Ram, it only makes sense then that she became familiar with what I was doing because that's what happens to kids is they kind of yeah. know what their parents do. Mm-hmm. None of that came together though. Like I kept waiting like, Oh shit, this is the kid of that mom that they referenced earlier. Nope. This is, this is just some kid that he hijacked because he couldn't have a child because it's against church doctrine, I guess. So he hid her away in some woody cabin somewhere in what Massachusetts or Connecticut or wherever the Conne- hell it we're is. In, we're in Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. Hunting in Connecticut. Right. Um, oh fuck. Oh, that movie. <laughs> you know, it's funny on a side note, you know, the Warrens have ties to that as well. Uh, I can't, I, I don't know if I, I can't look into any more <laughs> with these two. <laughs> I, I know. Um, I, I'm not even sure what you asked me. I'm so spun out at this point. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Just, but yeah. Well, yes, let's, let's, I think you asked me, is, is that, yes, that's how she came to it. She learned about it from her father yeah. and then just got too crazy with it to the point where he couldn't control her and couldn't keep her out of the tunnels underneath his house where she built stone altars and demonic totems and shit it's it's he couldn't keep her out of there it's incredibly silly yeah, some and daughters th- go to the club jesse some daughters go to the club some build stone altars and sacrifice small wooded animals hey let them go to the club if they're gonna do this shit uh if if uh the the thing is and i just i, I bring it back to the real life case the case of arnie johnson on on trial and yeah. meanwhile he's like exercising in in bed and they get they bring some other nondescript priest to like do something with him that way he's still in the movie uh this is okay one more thing i'm sorry to interrupt you real quick that needs to be father gordon yeah that needs he's been in the movie they've introduced him he's made several appearances if he's the good ally of the warren he needs to be there with that kid instead this is just some other guy that just shows up and just some kind of, you know, priest that's the prison priest. Uh, you're right. No, you're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. What ends up happening right, is uh, the 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 daughter shows up and kills the father, and then is chasing Lorraine in the catacombs. But Ed's in tow. He's got to come save Lorraine. But then, man, if you thought Ed had it bad last week with getting steam sprayed in his eyes, he's about to get blinded again by demon dust. And then, okay, Matt, here we go. Turns into Jack Torrance from The Shining, maddlingly swinging a sledgehammer to kill Lorraine. I'm like, what are we doing here in this thing? Like, we're already cribbing from like five other movies. What's happening here? This didn't happen in real life. You have to wrap up the movie. Please wrap it up so we can get back to the court case, which is the movie I wanted to watch. Yeah, Matt, I'm so done at this point. I'm, I'm just it's it's an hour and fifty one minutes. Are you kidding me? 
horror works best in the 130 to 140 space. Like, why are these, all three of these country movies have been so long, and I don't know why that is. I, I can't answer that either, but I will say this to you. Mm-hmm. Isla's plan was to sacrifice the lover. And Lorraine tells us earlier on in the film that the lover is Ed. So Isla has her mind, eyes, demonic plans set on sacrificing Ed so that Toby can be sated or whatever the hell is going on with this nondescript demon that they've yet to define. Mm -hmm. But instead, in these tunnels where she could easily sneak up on Ed and decapitate him or stab him or do any terrible, horrific thing, she blows blinding demon zombie dust on him, which turns him into... Like you said, Jack Torrance, but a blind, but a blind version of Jack Torrance. Mm -hmm. Cause he's got opaque eyes and I guess he's just stalking Lorraine through these tunnels by the sound of her heavy breath. Like what the fuck are we doing? I love that you call her. Where did you find this huge (laughs) mallet from? I love that you call her Isla. I don't, in my research, I've been scouring IMDb and Wikipedia while you've been talking about it. She's never given a name. She's never given a name. She's just called the occultist, but I love that you've given her that name because that's what we're going to call her now. <laughs> I think her, her real name is Eugenie Bondurant. Yes. And I was just looking on the Conjuring 3 cast, which, by the way, there's something interesting on this that I want to tell you. Oh. And she's named Isla. Do you know who else is given credit as one of the cast members on this? Who? And, like, she did not appear in this film. Bonnie Aaron. Do you know who Bonnie Aaron did? That's Val. The nun, yeah. I didn't. She's not in this film. Her did, picture is, but she's she, not in this film. Yeah, did she get credit because her picture's in the museum now? <laughs> or here's something else. Big question for you. Okay. Was she in it and somebody said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in this movie. Maybe we shouldn't put her in there. Enough's enough. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'll mean, i believe that, too. I mean, it's Warner Brothers for, 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 for all things considered. So, okay, so we're at tunnels and Ed is swinging this very heavy mallet and uh, our girl Lorraine is out of escape route. Mm-hmm. She's pinned up against some structure and she, there's no going forward or backward. Ed has her dead right and she says, Ed, remember me? And we get the very nice moment that is her and him remembering or him remembering the two of them on their first date kissing in the gazebo in the rainstorm and all it took Jesse was a little bit of love and remembering the past and all of a sudden the demon dust is swept away (laughs) and in a very studio dramatic pretty pink bow ending we get the moment that she already told the audience about and that is Ed picks up the mallet which again I don't know where he found this and instead of bashing Lorraine's head in he bashes the altar, dun dun dun, because that's what Lorraine was pinned against, and we are finally the fuck out. Hallelujah! I bet you're wishing for him singing Elvis because those that I'd rather have that than like that moment that you just referred to. <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe that um, it was so contrived that she happened to pin herself against the altar, and they said, "Yeah, go with it. That's gives us an end of this film." Yikes, dude. Well, again, it's an hour. We're like an hour and 50 minutes into this thing. Uh, they squash the demon. They've broken the curse. The demon becomes a with a husk or whatever. 
And well, then, that's weird too. Okay, so hold on. Let's talk about that for one yeah, more. Yeah, let's do it. The occultist, Isla, otherwise known as Isla, falls to her knees because as the altar is destroyed, she has not been able to meet the demands of her demon advisor or whatever that is, her, her demon cohort. Her, de- her, her demon sponsor? <laughs> I'm going to need a 12-step program after this podcast is over, too. Yeah. And so she goes through a very similar metamorphosis like David was doing on the table. Mm-hmm. And her arms bend back the wrong way, and she makes those <laughs> cracking noises that everyone makes when they're in the middle of <laughs> some you know, exorcism takeover, some you know, possession you, takeover. You know what it reminded me of was Anthony LaPaglia dying in Annabelle Creation. Oh, was it, you're right. Actually, it actually was like that, wasn't it? Yeah. You're right. So anyway, she contorts in a very odd way. And then Ed, standing there before her with his wife, sees the demon appears and says, essentially, some version of there's hell to pay. And because you didn't meet the demon's needs and you promised him a soul, he's going to take yours. And here's where things get really strange. The demon shows up and it looks exactly like her, the occultist. Yeah. You couldn't even be creative enough to give me a good looking demon for a minute. That's one of the things that this has succeeded, whether it's Annabelle or Valak or the crooked man is when we get to see the bad guy. Yeah. They usually look great. And it's, it's just the occultist with some sharp teeth. She literally looks like a puritanical school marm. It's very, very thin. That's literally what this poor gal looks like, this Eugenie Bondurant. Pretty weak. And it is pretty weak. At least the eyes weren't opaque. They were just glowing instead this time with some sharp teeth. And then off Isla goes to the netherworld with the demon, which is just one soul, which doesn't make sense why she was going to have to sacrifice three. And we still didn't really get a whole lot of explanation about the totems, other than I think they presented some passageway in and out of this demonic realm, but the good guys win. And I guess we're out except for the final sequence. That is about the only thing that's worked in this film for me up to this point, other than the very beginning, possibly. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Ed and Lorraine Warren's whole thing. They've been stretching the truth considerably with this entire plot of this film. And Ed forgot his aspirin and he's having another massive coronary here after this incident. And he's about to die. He's like, I forgot my pills, Lorraine. And she has a pill in his locket, which makes me want to puke, Matt. I'll be honest with you. Yes. Yeah. But why don't they, you've already played fast and loose with the rules of real life and the truth. Why doesn't Ed just die here? Like, you know what? He died in 2006. Just kill in your movies. You obviously don't care about the truth. Just kill him here. What do you care at this point, Conjuring franchise? I mean, come on. You better they pop probably that. probably care because this is going to clear $350 million and they're going to make the Conjuring 4 and I'm sure they'll get them on board somehow for one last time. Oh, I, I know I know, what, I know what you mean, but uh, you better pop well, that baby aspirin, Ed, because you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty gross that she had the heart medication, the aspirin in her locket, which is where she keeps the picture of Ed and her daughter. What, what was... Oh, yeah, remember remember her daughter? <laughs> What was more gross? Was it the aspirin in the locket? And then we get the courtroom truth, which Arnie did get convicted for only five years. And then 
he did marry Debbie and they lived happily ever after, allegedly. Uh, we finally get back to some semblance of the actual timeline. Mm-hmm. Is it the aspirin or is it the gazebo that Ed then brings back to their house? Well, you know how I feel about gazebos in film. You know, I'm a huge fan of that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's the aspirin. I'm, mm-hmm. I love I love a good gazebo sequence in film. I, I'm all about that. So it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> there's like another four minutes. There's like another four minutes of that movie. And the last lines of the movie, I think, are Ed saying, I forgot my aspirin. And then there's no more dialogue for the rest of the movie. It's Arnie and a kiss from his bride at the uh, in front of the courthouse and then it's some court glances in front of that. And there's really no more exchanges from anybody for the, until we cut to credits. <laughs> yeah. He shows Lorraine the gazebo that he's built, which is important because that's where they had their first date and their first kiss. But again, it's sentimentally nice. You don't need that. <laughs> we had that in the last movie, them dancing with Elvis. That was sentimentally nice. Why are we getting back to these like cute, happy, the good couple? I will and say, their love survive the day. Why do we keep doing that? Just I know we keep. I'll, I'll just say this though: that is at least one of the you mentioned them together is a plus in this entire franchise. So that that them together works. It's just they're you're right. They're feeding us so much of it in this movie. Yeah. Yep. But that's a capper on the the Conjuring thing. It would it would have kind of been interesting in this one had they been bold and said in two thousand six Ed died because that kind of would signal the end of their involvement in this universe. Agreed. Yes, you're right. It would. But you're entirely right. If, if this thing, okay, so this one I think costs forty million. Yeah, you're, you're right. If if it does pretty good, and you know what, like theaters are kind of getting to a place now where they're like open and back, and where they're making like Quiet Place had a pretty decent opening last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're at a point now where if like the ends justify the means, they'll, you're right. They'll bring them back for another adventure and we'll come back to it and we'll do it. But by God, if they pull any of this shit, they pull in this movie, I'm taking a full bottle of bourbon to me with me to the movie theater. And I don't care if I get kicked out, but I'm drinking that whole thing in the movie. I'm really curious to see, who wins the weekend? I would imagine that Cruella does with views, but I'm wondering about money wise because as Cruella is more of a family deal and on Disney plus, although this is on Warner brothers. So HBO max, I'm curious to see at the box office who comes out ahead. I would imagine well, it's going to well, be Cruella just because it tends to be a little bit more family friendly, but well, don't, cl- don't count out quiet place. Cause I think they cleared 50 million no, right. in box office last week, which is substantial for like where we're at right now. So that's pretty crazy that it's been nothing. And then we have what in any other time would be kind of a huge weekend with those three films. Like any one of those is an opening a number one, a number started, one. Yep. Right. And they all three, all I can, all, all, all I can, put three out of no, yeah, you're that's, absolutely right. All I yeah. can say is I'm glad we're back to talking about those type of things. You know what I mean? Amen. We're talking That's about good. like yeah, things that competing to be number one at the box office, which means theaters are happening again. But before we get to what we're going to be covering in the weeks to come, I have a couple questions for you. What was your favorite tasting yeah. note of The Conjuring? The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, I did think that there was some possibilities with as much as I didn't like the altar, what happened at the altar and the power that it held. 
Um, the problem was it was just a single entity by themselves, which would be that occultist instead of a whole group of people. Uh, and that's strictly just personal preference. Yeah. I like that nefarious group behind the scenes, tapping into the supernatural and the evil supernatural to, um, subject the unwitting to their debauchery. Uh, I just have always been fascinated by that in horror and talked about hereditary a lot. The problem is I can't wait till we do that. I, I can't wait till we do that movie one of these days. Cause it, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, me too. The mm-hmm. problem with this and that film, as much as I still like it is the first we get it's upside down and a little crooked, but, um, yeah, that has some potential. I, I found that to be okay. somewhat intriguing. It didn't play out, but somewhat intriguing Where you at? I really liked, I, I did like the potential with the Arnie Johnson character and like what they could have done with him and, his killing of the landlord and the doggy was it was it a doggy grooming place? Yeah. I did like that. And I, I kind of did like his character and I like that he could have maybe taken a little the focus off of Ed and Lorraine. And I know this is their franchise and everything goes through them, but that could have been I wanted Matt, I desperately wanted the courtroom drama. I, I yeah. thought that could have been a really interesting, unique look into this universe and with this particular film and oh my goodness if i could not have said that sooner that the film decides to go this way and it turns into procedural paranormal investigation and i'm just like blah (laughs) blah exactly poorly done on top of it tired and poorly done i don't know what we're gonna pick for this but what do we have for the What moment in this movie made you do that and have to go take a drink of your, whatever, your, bourbon sunrise? What are you drinking over there again? The bourbon breeze. Okay, yeah. bourbon breeze, yeah. Bourbon sunrise sounds pretty good. That sounds like a Long Island iced tea with some bourbon in it, which I think <laughs> bourbon might already be in that drink. It's kind yeah. of a hodgepodge. I believe it is, you're right. But what moment in this movie is making you do that? Uh, I'll tell you mine. Right, well, you think ahead. about yours. It's the cliff moment. I knew it was going to be it when I saw it in the trailer, and I was like, I'm already on the ropes with this franchise and the believability of true life events, but then you're going to pull that shit and literally hurl Lorraine off a cliff where Patrick Wilson has to, in his stint, massive coronary, heart attack-ridden state, is going to pull yeah. her up with one arm? Man, I'm not even going to be able to do that in my current state, much less a heart attack driven state like bullshit. Like that. Oh, that is is such a grown moment. And then I think back to admitting defeat in the opening scenes with ripping off the exorcist. Yeah. Yeah. You're not even trying at this point. I'm going to go watch the exorcist. I'm going to go watch Rosemary's baby or don't look now or all those great, the omen, those great films from the area that actually try to make like horror matter compared to this where they're just yeah. literally you know you know going by the books of what's been done before and I'm out you know what I mean you know horror is an important genre for me and I do not see the writers or the directors or anybody involved with this like really trying to give me something new and refreshing I hear you yeah and that was going to be my oh my god moment was the arrival of the priest from the exorcist I mean the arrival of the priest and the uh what the hell's the name of that family? David's exorcism. Glut, Glutzel. Glutzel. Yeah, I had to do it at night underneath a street lamp. Come on. You're There's literally. A million, 
Just get in later and have him already there. You're also ripping off maybe one of the top five greatest cinematography shots of all time. Yep. Get out of here. I mean, like, I have no time for you when you're going to be pulling stuff like that. Yeah, that's, that's a bad moment. Those are two not um, banner moments for this, this this franchise, for sure. This is going to be hard, but maybe we can come to a consensus. But who can you qualify as a master distiller on The Conjuring? The devil made me do it. Man, can I give it to Patrick Wilson? I thought he was Abs- okay. Absolutely, um, I, yeah. thought he, I think he played... Uh, injured guy with the heart condition pretty well um yeah so that's probably where i go is him and yeah i'm gonna do i'm gonna do this because i was pretty hard on her in the first film i'll give it to vera farmiga because she's grown on me a little bit throughout this franchise so while she's grown on me the franchise has gone that way uh and she's gone this way so i think i appreciate her more and appreciate the franchise less Fair. I think that's a good way to put it. That makes perfect sense. Oh, I don't know what Ugh. you're going to do here, but Matt, how are you going to rate and grade The Conjuring? The Devil Made Me Do It. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I'm so curious. Rock Gut Plus. Rock Gut Plus. It's not a good, it's not, it's not a good movie. Yeah. But what's, what's uh, the, we've done worse. What? Yeah, I was going to say, what's the plus? I think if you just take some moments and look at the visual remove the story and just the look of some of that. Um, I think that there are some effective looking moments in the movie. I don't know if they tie into the story and, and bring it all together in any way that would justify more than that. But there are some decent looking effects and it feels like it's set mm-hmm. in 1981. And the one thing that I really was sort of hoping in this film and I didn't get it would be the way that Lorraine is dressed in this Mm -hmm. is so out of time with what should be any piece of the way anybody dressed in the eighties, much less, um, you know, this spinster looking religious woman, as it compares to who's good and who's bad. Do you think part so of the, when you look do you, do you think part of the problem with that is they're supposed to be in their fifties, but they still look yeah. young. You know what I mean? So yeah. they're like everything's kind of out of balance with that. Like the look of them, like and the real version of Ed and Lorraine Warren at this current time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that there's some, some possibility there. Um, when you look at the way she's dressed compared to the occultist, Isla, kind of similar in a lot of ways, very, mm-hmm. very formal and puritanical and repressed and structured. Um, and they both kind of possess the same abilities. If you want to be honest about it, there's a nice parallelism in there. I'm building that. The movie didn't build anything. Yeah, exactly. I'm <laughs> giving it a lot of credit. So yeah, that's that's gonna keep it from being straight rock up. But I mean, we're talking rock up plus. This is I'll be yeah, a, this is, I'll be a little kinder. I mean, and when I give it like the the benefit of the doubt and the shred of a better rating, it's usually the production value is like some decent money went into making this look decent. Yeah, look, I'm gonna go well minus. But I gotta tell yeah. you, this is the worst of all the three 
four that we've reviewed for this current cask. And mm. at this point, Matt, and I'm going to keep my review simple. I am D O N E done with this franchise. Fair. Me too. I mean, I, am too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sadist. I mean, I'll go watch if they make another one, I'll go see it. But I, you are going to have to literally move mountains to make me believe that I really like this in its, when I saw it for the first time. And that's, I think the biggest takeaway from this entire cask is I thought I liked it and there's things I do like about it, but what ruins it for me is more memorable, but than the movies itself, everything. Yeah, I think that's really fair. Yeah. So I'm very curious to see where this conjuring universe goes forward. Is the Crooked Man movie going to happen? Are they going to do a Conjuring 4 with Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga? I have no idea. I'll go see it. But at this point, right now, two days after this movie comes out, I'm done. I'm just I'm just so done with, with, with this aspect of horror. There's better horror movies out there, man. How that, that's so crazy that it's changed from we were really excited to do this cast to, good Lord, not another Conjuring film. And that's from two guys that really like horror as well and really liked this film initially. That's it. Started this film. That's interesting. I mean, the podcast brings forth the format to think of things layer by layer and film by film. And it's a, it's why I think films warrant re, uh, repeat view, repeat viewings. So you can yeah. go back and, you know, dissect, you know, how you felt about things and, and see things in a different light. And yep. much like our flight, there's things that grow on me. There's things that get better with each viewing. Uh, mm. I told you off mic, I've been like Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. Like, uh, it might be maybe the best superhero film we've ever seen. It just gets mm. better with every viewing, whereas some of these things, they're getting poorer in every viewing. So, you know, that's that's a whole that's a whole shot episode that we could do about just like things you've come back to and how they fare. But this has been incredibly interesting to look at this franchise. But again, I've been grateful because you and I, we love horror. So it's been fun to like stay in this space and just kind of get spooked. But I wasn't spooked by this movie. I've already said that already. No, right. Me either. Right. That's also troubling. It wasn't scary. There's also that, but that's, that's great. But let's wrap this up as we always do with our nightcap question. Matt, I don't know about yourself, but Patrick Wilson came over here and he built me a gazebo in this office. <laughs> nice. I can't wait to see it. Oh, goodness. Uh, okay. The nightcap is my question, and it's been my whole thesis for this entire cask. Based on a true story, inspired by a true story, Matt, I honest, honest to God, I honestly think the Writers Guild needs to go back and reevaluate what constitutes based on a true story. Because mm-hmm. as, as you've said before, it's like something like 20, 30%. Yep. We got to fix yep. that because people are getting away with murder here and they're flinging women against walls and throwing them off cliffs and saying, this, this happened. But what made me think of this story, 
I'm glad you're laughing because I've been laughing all week. Uh, <laughs> I have a book here, and I recommend everybody look into it. It's called Behind the Horror, and it's actually a book about uh, horror films based on true events, the things that actually happened. And uh, yeah. the first chapter is actually Fritz Lang's M with Peter Lorre. Uh, that was actually an event that happened in Germany with, uh, you know, child abductions and child murders that that film goes into, which is, that's an interesting, maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. But Ooh, yeah. uh, my question to you, that moniker has been used a lot in from M to this film. What's your favorite based on or inspired by? I much prefer inspired by, and that's where I'm going with my answer. What's your favorite of those films? This was tough as I dug into this. There's a lot of films I didn't know had actual basis for where they started and how they got to this over screen. Um, but the one that I'm going to go with what troubled me the most and really bothered me for a little while. Okay. Praying God, I never found myself in that situation. It's Wolf Creek. Ooh, um, good choice. Jesus Christ, man. That's a tough film because that could happen to just about anybody in any circumstance. And but first of all, those four, those four, four, those four poor kids in Australia. My God, why, why, why are you backpacking in literally the middle of nowhere? That's a mistake, first of all. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lesson you learned there for sure. (laughs) But that being said, you know, when you're that vulnerable and you're relying on the help of others, God, and you know, where else are you going to go to the most common place, which would be the repair shop. And then it all just goes South. Um, that's everything that the Texas chainsaw was in a good way, magnified times 10. That's the way I would say that film. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that because that's actually the answer I'm going with for my choice. Oh, yeah. uh, all right, good. I, I actually look, uh, I've told you before off mic and, you know, when we write and when we just riff and talk nonsense about movies, yeah. how unfan like I was of Texas Chainsaw. And then we did that. I saw a viewing of that in between that. And then we did the movie on the podcast last October. I'm a huge fan of that movie now, Matt. And what I really like about it is, you know, all the social, you know, political things of what what that movie is in Vietnam and, you know, all those things of culture in 1974 at the time. But I really like that Toby Hooper and crew were able to take shreds of Ed Gein and mold it into Leatherface and that family. And it makes for an impactful horror film that's super, maybe 5% inspired by actual events but it makes yeah. for a better movie. You can actually get away with a whole lot more. And there's some moments in there that are super, super effective. And uh, that's a film that's, it's again, talking about, you know, our, our flight conversation films that get better over time or get worse over time. It's that one's getting actually a little bit better. The more that I think about it and, and, and watch it. So that's my answer for this week. All in choice. I love it. Great. Ed Gein. Love it. When you really break it, like Ed Gein wasn't chopping up his like mom and like his people with chainsaws or like, you know, it's it's so far removed from the actual truth of like what Ed Gein is. And I think that inspired by moniker actually works better for horror. There's more creativity that the writers and the directors have to do to make those films work. You're right. You're right. Yep. 
Any honorable so mentions? Based on, let's just say anything that's based on you and I need to run run for the hills. Maybe that's the lesson we should take away from this. Any movie, not just horror, any movie. <laughs> based on. So this is mostly not at all true, but we're going to pretend it is. <laughs> that's, so strange be, that's so strange because I've always wanted to do, and we will do it, like a based on real life events cast because like there's films that, like I really like Apollo 13. It's one of two Ron Howard movies I really like. And that's based on actual factual events that happened in history. Yeah. So it's, it's tricky, but you, you know, we talk business on this podcast a lot and Hollywood and the machine that it is like you put based on a true story on a movie poster or in front of a trailer and you're getting butts and seats, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's totally a, it's almost manipulation. Someone should write a book on like Hollywood studios manipulating people to go see movies that aren't actually based on real life facts. So I'll read mm. I'll read that book and then I'll recommend it on this podcast. That'd be a great one, Matt. This has been a lot of fun. It's been super weird. I'm used to looking at you across from the desk here um, to play off of like your reactions, but. I kind of knew how this episode was going to go. So maybe that's made it uh, a a whole lot better. I'm not having to defend Blade Runner over the telephone. You, you have to be, you have to be in person for that one. There's certain ones that have to be done in the present. This is the first for you and I, we've, uh, God, we're probably 150 episodes in now. And we talked about the Patreon stuff. And this is the first time we've not ever done it together, but Rye continues on even on vacation. So week by week, we, up and bourbon breathe aside, we're still going to cut the show, baby. We find a way to make it happen. Uh, yeah. Okay. So in the coming weeks, we're leading up to another cask of a new release, and we'll allude to that later in the future. But we need to fill some time in the next two weeks with. And Matt and I have talked, and we're probably going to fill it with some new releases. It's, I mean, it's been a long time coming to like get back to some films in theaters and films being released on platforms where we can actually start covering newer content. Uh, yeah. and I think we're excited about it. So Matt, um, we've talked about two films off mic. I'm going to leave it up to you right now. What are we talking about next week? Well, we just did horror this week. So let's go the other way. So next week we are going to do brand new Disney film that supposedly is fantastic. I've yet to see it, but I can't wait to talk about it. Let's see Cruella, Jesse. Let's get some Cruella going on next week. Let's do it. I'm excited about this because I've been lukewarm on Disney's repurposing of past properties to further their further future innovation, which we should talk about that next week because for Mm -hmm. a a man like Walt Disney, and there's a whole history about that man too, (laughs) uh, to build an empire on originality and innovation for the f- current generation of Disney to essentially just be regurgitating everything the man already did. You yep. know, you know what I mean? So I'm curious about that, but I'm a, I'm an Emma Stone fan. Like I'm, I'm curious to see what, if this works, if a villain That's origin. What I was just going to say as much as you don't like the repurposing, I know you like Emma Stone. I so do. Yeah. Low and cold. <laughs> Mark Strong's in this too. I could probably do without Emma Thompson, but we'll see. Apparently it's fantastic. Oh, let's do it. I'm excited for that. And then next week's episode after that uh, will also be really good. And actually it'll be, we'll be covering the film that essentially send us on the quarantine route. You know what I mean? So if you want to go back about uh, a year and five episodes, then there'll be a preview to what we were going to do. Yep, Exactly. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping here. Uh, 
sorry I didn't do this at the beginning, but I was too excited about doing a creepy intro to have Matt enter in on the other side. Poltergeist 2, say hi to Carol Ann while you're there, Matt. Uh, but <laughs> uh, extra spa- uh, Patreon shout out to Sheila R., a new Patreon subscriber. Uh, thank you for joining us. Matt and I are raising our glasses, our bourbon and bourbon breeze to you. You're going to have a lot of fun here. And then for Matt, just to do an extra special pitch on the Patreon, June's rocking. We're doing the Rye Watch Along of Tombstone with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer. And then we're going to do a full-blown episode on Dazed and Conf- Richard Linkletter's Dazed and Confused. For the people that aren't on the Patreon yet that want to get on, but you're maybe on the fence or you're just like, I get it too. I mean, like you have to pay money to like go listen to more. I mean, that's that, that that's a leap. And, and in my personal life, Matt, like I subscribe to a couple of Patreons and I really have to make it like work mentally to like pay for that. You know what I mean? I do. No, I know. I, I had one that I was on for a while. It was a sports one and it was almost just too much content, um, which is good and bad and sort of the purpose of why you do that. But I, yeah, I, I understand it. But here's the thing with the Patreon and Matt and myself is the Rye Watch alongs are completely different than anything we do on the regular. It's you're literally, it's if you could sit us down on the couch and watch a movie with us, it's that. And then for whatever reason, we're telling the craziest batch of stories when we watch these movies. So if you want to know like my crazy tales about telling casting directors that I'm an expert horseback rider, you got to subscribe and listen to the Tombstone episode because my God, what was I thinking? That's so awesome. Or if you want to know my first introduction into uh, shoplifting, and that's good. we've covered that as well. Exactly. So there, there's like, we call it rice smile after dark, but like there's, those episodes are just a little bit different than what we offer on the regular. So if you want a taste of that, that's the only place you can get it. That's the Ross you and I are. Huh? These are always a little bit more scripted and a little bit more formal. A little bit. Yeah. Those ones are more foreign. Those are, those are more like, that's like going to a, a bar and just hanging out with someone. You know what I mean? Like, and, and maybe that's the pitch for that is it's more friendly in the Patreon. It sure is. It's, and we do have a good time and we get in some really interesting conversations. Sometimes that have nothing to do with the film. Absolutely. Uh, but June and July are going to be a lot of fun for the Rice Smile audience. We're also going to tackle the Loki show on uh, the Patreon exclusively and then, as we alluded to, we're we're going to build up to a big film releasing at the beginning of July. It's already going to be released in theaters and on a certain streaming platform. Matt, let's not let the cat out of the bag yet, but it's a uh, it's it, it'll be it'll warrant a lot of great discussions in what we're going to talk about. So, you have that to look forward to. Let me ask you a question. Speaking of Patreon, how uh, how are you coming along with Sarah? I love it. For those that okay, okay, excellent. For those that haven't jumped on yet, we have a whole TV component that we're doing there because TV is a space that Matt really likes and myself I really like, but Matt's the kind of expert in that realm. We did an episode on the Netflix exclusive Who Killed Sarah, and I can't recommend enough. People, mm-hmm. go dive into this show. It will become your new addiction. It'll hold you over until Stranger Things comes out in October. But yeah. you will you will burn through so much so quickly. So, uh, great recommendation. Sweet. I'm glad that you're enjoying it. That's fantastic. Yes. So good. So, until that, Rye audience, hit us up on Facebook or Instagram or Rye Smile Productions at gmail.com. Hit up T Public. Uh, 
Matt, we're going to have to put some tombstone shirts on there. Who doesn't want to own a shirt that says, I'm your Huckleberry? Ooh, yeah, exactly. exactly. I can't think of <laughs> but until then, everyone, thank you. We love you. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, and Atomic Monster Productions and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. You promised the demon a soul. (sighs) And it can't go back to hell without one.